Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. I have always said that when I do a podcast, the thing I've figured out is there's somebody sitting across from me that can tell a story that no one else on the planet can tell. And your job as the podcast host is to get that story out and call it 80% of the time, four out of five of these. I sort of know what the story is going in and I guide the conversation. Welcome in, Alma Cook. I have no idea what that story is today. <laughs> oh, well, lucky for you, I have some idea. How's it going, Chuck? I heard you need a job. Uh, you know, this is sad. I cut a check to the government today for uh, taxes. I might actually have to get a job. Oh, so, Chuck. I always yeah. say if, if I had a magic wand and, and could do one thing legislatively, it would be to get rid of automatic withholding. So that everyone would have to feel that pain every April oh, totally. that business owners feel and contractors feel. Oh, totally. Yeah. Quarterly withholding Ugh. tax to pay for. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, the write-offs, you know, can't complain at some of the things that you get to write off when you're running. If you cab, have no but... income, there's nothing yeah. to write off, though. That's kind of the problem. <laughs> no, no write-offs sound great, but yes, when you have no income. But anyway, how I wind up still having to kind of check is beyond me. So as I recall... Dear sweet friend, Michael Patrick Smith, the good hand, the musician turned Bakken oil field worker introduced us somehow. Is that right? Yeah, he that, that is right. And I even the way he put that kind of just made me uh, bristle a little bit because that's always been my claim to fame, being the musician turned Bakken oil field chick. And Michael stole my story from out from under me. Oh, wow. But he's such a good guy. He wrote, wrote a book. book. Yeah, he wrote a book. <laughs> he tried to trump you on it. There you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. No, but but it, it's good to have. Uh, it's good to have him uh, in my my same category. And he, I was in L.A. for the last eight years essentially, and he's been in New York. So we kind of were holding it down on different sides of the country with the same story. So give me this story. How? I mean, how do you put together musician and Bakken in the same sentence? Well, it, I mean, it wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have ended up in the Bakken without music at the end of the day. So I, I was a city kid, born and raised in Madison, Wisconsin, went to school in Chicago for music, music major, in fact. So not exactly on, on the path to become like a petroleum engineer or something. <laughs> Madison, but, uh, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Oh, you home love Madison. Garbage. The home of garbage. No, the band garbage. Oh, the gar- yeah, the band garbage. <laughs> garbage. No, the band garbage. <laughs> Butch no, Butch Vig uh, actually produced Nevermind by Nirvana in Madison, Wisconsin, oh at the Smart Studios. At Smart yeah. Studios, no kidding. Absolutely. I didn't know that you're teaching yeah. me hometown trivia. Yeah, but I so I majored in music. Um, I I got something really rare at that time when I graduated, which was what 2013 from college, um, which was an online job. Those were not you know, a dime a dozen at that time. And I thought I was going to hold this online job forever. It was, I was a, a copy editor, professional grammar Nazi. It was a lot of fun. I wasn't making very good money, but I was getting paid to read um, about politics, no less. And it was just, it was a lot of fun. So I was working part-time doing that. Um, working from home allowed me to move remotely to, or excuse me, move to LA and continue working remotely. 
Uh, and I thought that was just going to be my rhythm, you know, working from home, able to still flexibly play festivals or travel to tour whenever I would need to. Um, but then I got sassy and I got fired and um, I ended up just kind of caught flat footed. And this family friend of mine, um, who my brother had studied abroad with in Thailand, of all places, um, was from Williston and had started a safety company during the boom. And so he extends me the one online job that they had at that company, which happened to open up that very week, which was a compliance position. Uh, I took it. I had no idea what I was doing. I always tell people I didn't know the difference between a drilling rig and a cell phone tower when I started, and that's right. the truth. Um, but I fell in love with it. You know, there's there's some growing pains at first, but I caught the bug. And so, when is a circa what year? About? Uh, well, you know, what's interesting is I was I was editing, I was copy editing safety manuals throughout that time for him on and off. So I kind of had you know like a, a foot in the door. I remember looking at like Oasis's. SOPs before I knew who Oasis was. So that that probably started um, maybe 2014, 2015. I even visited the Bakken around then. But it was 2017 when I was all in. Okay. And, you know, started making oil field money rather than editorial money, if you know what I mean. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So safety compliance, ever run across Kraken? All the time. Yeah. I mean, they're Bakken dominant up there. Yeah. No, Bruce and uh, Brad. So that was portfolio company when I was with Kane Anderson. No kidding. Well, they've come a long way. They just doubled in size practically buying those bowline assets. Guys, y'all can actually go sell. (laughs) (laughs) We've had that company for so long. And they're such good guys. It does well, but it's like every time oil prices creep up, I'm like, please just go sell. But anyway. Oh my gosh. They don't watch the podcast, so they won't hear. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't put it fast them. So, so say, do you actually move to uh, the Williston Basin, or are you still living in L.A. when you're... Well, you know, I, I kept a foot in L.A. for a long time, and what ended up happening was I would go up to the Bakken for business trips to visit with clients. I mean, most of what I can do, I can definitely do from home, but it's always nice to have that FaceTime and nice to, you know, be there for an inspection or be there for an audit or whatever someone may be going through from the compliance side. Um but it just got harder and harder to get back off the plane at LAX when I would land. You know, I would see the palm trees and it wasn't a happy sight. I just kind of wanted to be back in the Balkan all the time. So I started spending more and more time up there. First time that's ever been said, I think, really? on the planet. Ah, <laughs> you're kidding. No, no I, I'm sure there are kids from Montana and North Dakota that say yeah, anything. Maybe. No, there's something special about that place, man. I mean, the... The, the speed of the town, the fact that you can walk into a bar and, and know a number of people there, and some of them are probably CEOs that you've been meaning to meet. It's a really special place, an industry town, you know? So you moved up there. I did. I cut ties with L.A. actually last year. I, I kept a place in L.A., but eventually it just it got too much. I should have cut ties earlier, like during the pandemic, for example. But, um, but yeah, I bought a house last summer, and... And now I'm married a Houstonian, so now my my split is Williston Houston rather than Williston LA. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Now, what does the what does the husband do? He actually, you'd be interested in this. Um, he works in emissions management and measurement okay. for a company called Validier, and um, they. I mean, he's new to the company, so we're still figuring out uh, a good rhythm there. But they seem to be fantastic and just solving really interesting problems. Yeah, no, that's. That's that's going to be very interesting because the SEC is making everyone disclose emissions mm-hmm. and the like, 
and I've said this numerous times, so people are sick of me saying this, but I think it's actually going to be really good for the oil and gas business because it's burning our product that's the problem. It's the Amazon vans. It's actually mm-hmm. not us. I mean, in terms of producing oil and gas type stuff, we, we're we not at zero emissions, but we've done a really good job of cleaning that up. So I think we're going to look good by comparison. Yeah, I mean, you're talking the difference between scope one and scope three, it sounds right. like. Yeah, yeah and I, I don't know how you even begin to measure that stuff in this, on the scope three side, but I love to... And I think it's going to be eye rolls at scope three. I mean, everybody, yeah. you know, everybody at scope three is going to be whatever, and people are going to look at scope one, and yeah. we're going to look good by comparison. My, my heart breaks for the scope two side. Uh, I don't know if you want a bunny trail here uh, this soon in the interview, but bunny, I mean, because bunny I, trail away. Oh man! So my my clients are the contractors. My clients are the vendors who work for these oil and gas operators. I'm here to help small businesses navigate the world of compliance, which includes some environmental stuff. It also includes insurance and training, um, any anything under the sun that you can imagine. It just kind of gets grouped in that compliance umbrella. And what we're seeing more and more of is that my guys are being asked to. <laughs> More often than not, just simply fill out 200-page questionnaires about their emissions, which they're not measuring because they're like a two-person company or a three-person company. And these are getting reported back up to the operators for what? For just bad data collection? I don't don't really understand. So I'm starting to see it get in my guy's way. I won't say it's been a problem, but um, it's been an annoyance, and I'm a little worried that pretty soon... um, it's going to be something that they have to, to to really, really work hard and spend money to measure. So which... give me give me an example of maybe a, a client. Are you talking owner-operator has three drilling rigs, that type person? Give me give me an example of a client that would be falling under this potentially burdensome regulation. Yeah. Um, I So an example I use a lot are, are welders. Welders okay. are doing pipeline or someone who does insulation for tanks on site. Um, they're maybe a five-person company. Maybe it's just one person. And uh, every every bit of paperwork that you add to a one-person company is a burden because this guy grew up on a farm or he grew up on the rigs. He didn't get into this business for paperwork. And so he literally doesn't... I mean, it's not that he's dumb. He just hasn't spent his time getting interested in this stuff. And so he doesn't even know what he's looking at when he's asked questions about his emissions and how or much, water use or whatever. And how much does... Um, a welder actually even admit? I wouldn't know where to begin even <laughs> looking at that. Actually, I, I have kind of a dream that my husband could could start a company up in the Bakken that would help um, folks in that demographic get to the measuring when it's time, you know, when someone's holding a gun to their head and saying, or else. But uh, in the interim, I, I don't know. There's just so many question marks. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it because when you said welder, I'm sitting there going, okay, so they've got the the gun going, and I'm sure it, it emits something driving to him. Driving to job. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that kind of... I think so, yeah. I mean, you're supposed to track miles driven. I mean, we track miles driven often for incident rates, but it starts to matter more when you're actually trying to measure emissions uh, rather than simply average it against how many you know crashes you've had on the road. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's... <laughs> It's tough. And what people don't realize is that oil and gas is built on the backs of these very small companies. I mean, tens of thousands of these small service providers are making the industry run. It's not Exxon. It's not BP. It's not Shell. It's not even Kraken. It's, it's you know, Bob's Welding. It's 
Kenny's Insulation. It's it's almost compliance company. You know what I mean? Yeah. And does that, I mean, does that wind up ultimately being outsourced somehow? Or at this point, I guess they're just having to figure it out. Yeah, they're having to figure it out. They, they outsource it to me at the moment. But in terms of actual measurement, there's there's nobody in the Bakken, I think, that's helping those companies of that scale measure their emissions. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's, there's always, it's always funny whenever somebody talks about, oh, you know, big business hates government. Big business loves, loves government. Right, because yes. they put these rules in place mm-hmm. and big business can absorb these costs and handle it. And mm-hmm. all it does is put the uh, small competitors out of business. Yeah. And in this case, small vendors who ultimately will have to raise their prices and it'll make the operators raise their prices too. So I don't exactly know where this is going. We're just kind of kicking the can down to the next guy. And, and you know, we sit there and we build up this cost structure and make our oil uncompetitive versus foreign sources. And they don't take as good a care as we do in terms of watching out for the environment, et cetera. And I always say, and pardon my French, it's there's not a ping and non-ping part of the pool, right? right. I mean, you either pollute the yeah. environment by burning a burning a barrel, or you don't, you know. And so, yeah, that's that's uh, that's unfortunate. So, give me how does music play into this? Mm. Well, I continuing to work from home as was always the plan. Um, I had still ample free time and now a little more financing to continue to put out the same kinds of projects that I was doing um, back in college and and shortly thereafter. Um, But as I fell more and more in love with the Bakken, my focus, uh, and I was already writing a lot of songs about place. I've always been fascinated by the idea of place. My favorite place was the Bakken. So what am I going to write about but the Bakken? And not in a corny, cheesy, like, oh, down home, oil patch man song kind of way, but something that's poetic and, and moving and um, sincere. And so I wrote this one song in particular called 5,000 Candles uh, and released a music video for that last year that featured a lot of those small vendors that we were just talking about. Um, and people responded super well to it. I thought this song was kind of a, I don't know, not that I thought that it was corny, but it was more of an experiment in rhyme than anything. I didn't think people would latch onto it, much less people outside of the Bakken, but it's consistently, you know, uh, tagged as people's favorite songs of mine when I'm at shows they request it, um, whether it's in Williston, North Dakota or in Madison, Wisconsin. So I remember, because I think Michael Patrick Smith sent me that song. Maybe that's how we met, or maybe you sent it to me. I couldn't remember. But so who do you sound like if, if we've got comparables? It is the only cook music style experience similar to. I've I've uh, prepped myself for a lot of interview questions over the years, and for some reason, I always slack on this one. <laughs> Five thousand candles in particular, it's hard to match. Um, so I would put it as like a folk Americana. I'm struggling singer, to find. Songwriter. Yeah, singer songwriter. My happy place is more R and B and neo soul, pop soul. Uh, and some of my stuff is is much more in that vein, but Five Thousand Candles is kind of just like this middle of the road pop, like adult contemporary. Uh, I'm really grasping at straws, trying to find a, a name to match. But I got you. So Jewel and Barry White had a baby. And that's that's five. <laughs> that's Five Thousand Candles. Yeah, or? maybe with that, with a little bit of um, uh, oh, it's not it's not folk, it's not bluegrass. Like I don't, 
I don't quite know, but people will have to listen to it for themselves. It's not that it's so profound that I can't label it. I'm just bad at labeling it. <laughs> See, the uh, the record deal, you got to have the pitch, right? You're always you're always combining somebody popular with somebody from the past, and you're saying they had a baby. That's the key to your pitches. Sure, yeah, if I cared about pitches, but I mean, this is the era of the independent musician, and I have the ability to fund a career that most independent musicians can't because of of oil and gas. Not that I'm rolling in cash or anything, but compared to copy editor salary or a barista salary, like I, I've been really blessed in that way and I'm super grateful. So no record label for me. I'm gonna keep doing the independent thing. I love it. Nice. Work slow at my own pace. Nice. Now my oldest uh, kiddo, my daughter Charlie is big time musician and um has always been. I mean so ten year ten that. year when she was 10 years old, I started taking her to a music producer. And it's the wildest thing because you've done Americana, singer-songwriter, so you probably play the acoustic guitar. I, I play an acoustic tenor guitar because I'm a cheater. Ooh, nice. Only four strings on six. She couldn't play an instrument to save her life. She programs it all into the computer, right? So left her own devices. She's probably EDM sounding out there. She's put together a group that kind of has a more, what I'll call, pop-type vibe to it. But uh, at the end of the day, yeah, I've got a musician, too. Oh, that's a great time. How old is she? So she's 20. Okay. And this is this is a great story. So she, after her sophomore year in high school, says, screw it. I'm done with high school. Drops out and goes to college. So drops out two years early. Goes to college, gets a music and a political science degree from Bard College, and decides, Dad, I'm going to New York, and I'm going to be a DJ. I'm like, oh my gosh. Dad wants to go to New York and be a DJ. <laughs> that sounds outstanding. <laughs> so anyway, she goes, she, she throws a couple of shows, and one night she is in line for somebody, the National, 1975, one of those bands. They were having an after party. Management comes out and says, hey, you're not getting in tonight. It's only VIPs. We're packed. Y'all go home. Charlie finds this vest that has the fluorescence on it, you know, kind of like a security mm -hmm. guard would wear. And she puts it on and just walks into the party and just kind of acts, oh, like acts like she acts uh, like she uh, belongs there, right? <laughs> At one point, works the door for two hours. Oh, my gosh. She's just sitting there. Is your, can I see your ID? You're not on the list. I'm you sorry. You are kidding me. The power of the uniform, right? She does this, so it's four o'clock in the morning, and it's like the bass player, the band, the manager. There's somebody that writes a sub stack on Manhattan Nightlife, and you know, five or six other, and they're all sitting around. And Charlie just fusses up. Yeah, I shouldn't have been in here. I just stole this jacket. I put it on, and the person that wrote the sub stack um, column was like, "Oh my god, that's great!" and wrote an article about DJ Door Girl. Oh my goodness! And she's become a bit of a minor celebrity now. I love it. She has not asked for money in eight months. No, not from you? Not from me. Maybe the ex-wife <laughs> is sending her money, but I don't think so. She's usually, I'm usually the go-to. Well, that's about, now, don't, tell me she has a better name than DJ Doorman or Do Door, Door Girl. Girl. DJ okay. Door Girl. Now, she said, hey, that's what came out in the sub stack. So oh, my gosh. She's just she goes by DJ Door Girl. DJ Door Girl. I mean, hey. Yeah, I know. Isn't that crazy? I love it. So is she doing that full time? She is. Wow, what a gift. What a time to be alive, huh? I know. And and what's so funny is I have the total old man sleep pattern now where I'll go to bed at 
pick a time, 10 o'clock, and I wake up at 3 in the morning and have to pee, right? 2 or 3 in the morning. I have well, to I'm pee seven pee. months pregnant. I feel you on that there one. There we go. <laughs> yes. The 54-year-old male, the young <laughs> pregnant woman. We we have the same pee schedule. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I get up and I always pick up Instagram and she's always live on Instagram. I'm going, man, that looks like a lot of fun. I would, I would want to go do that. Oh, have, have you been to one of her parties? Um, I've seen a couple of her shows, but I have not been to New York yet to see one. We've just kind of, we, they've just never lined up correctly. So, uh, anyway, but I want to do that this summer. Oh yeah. You've got to, what a blast. So tell me shows, you go out and play shows. What's that look like? I play a a small to medium amount of shows. Um, What's really funny, Chuck, is that the the live music economy is much friendlier in North Dakota than it is in L.A. Uh, And that's, I don't know exactly what to chuck that up to. I mean, L.A. has a lot of musicians and singers. Supply and demand, exactly. And I think there's just not a lot of people there that are interested in in attending um, stuff. And not to mention all their friends are throwing shows all the time. And so they're, they're going out for other purposes. Um, but yeah, in, in Williston, it's easy to be, we call it packing a small box in the music industry. It's easy to be a, a big fish in a small pond. And um, that has worked to my just delight, I think. Um, I, I play a handful of festivals up there. there. There's this big Norwegian cultural festival, and I'm very Norwegian, no matter the, what the, the brunette oh. uh, <laughs> eyebrows would say. Uh, and that was a, a four-day festival I was able to play last fall. Um, I play a lot of restaurants, you know, diff- just different things around town. It's it's not like it's not like playing a huge set at a at a one of the legendary LA venues, but my friends are there, people I love are there, and the money's decent. I'm mean, not to keep coming back to money, but again, supply and demand is going to skew you away from the pay to play model and more toward guarantees. So I love playing sh- shows in North Dakota. I play I play shows at other places too, but it just you know I do things at my own pace, man. So oh, whatever so cool. comes up. <laughs> That's so cool. The um, it was oh, I wish I could remember her name because I'm sure you potentially know her. She's from Montana, and oh gosh. Anyway, well, this was crazy. Small town in Montana, literally up on the um, up on the Canadian border. Guy builds an amphitheater there, and for whatever reason, he's in love with the singer Jewel. And he's decided Jewel needs to play the opening in oh this amphitheater. And so I get the phone call from my dear friend, Jewel, who's like, we're going to Montana. And I was like, really? So fly into Billings, I think. And then we helicopter up. To- yeah. <laughs> and, and so a couple of crazy things on that trip. One, as we're helicoptering up, helicopter pilot's like, hey, do y'all have 10 minutes? You want to see this? And we're like, Sure. So he kind of banks right, and this guy's built an 18-hole golf course where in the middle of the 15th fairway, he has an exact replica of Stonehenge. Oh, my goodness, so you're kidding me. he's kind of like flying over, and he goes, I don't know what this is. It's Stonehenge, <laughs> and it looks exactly like it. So anyway, we do that. But um, we wind up we wind up flying, and Jewel opens the amphitheater that night, and the opening act was so cool, and I'm blanking on her name. It would have been much better story had I had her name, because you probably know the uh, performer. I think her dad was a uh, famous performer. She's uh, from North Dakota? Or? She's in Montana. She's in Montana. Yeah. 
north of the you know north north they all run together for for me and i get that that's hundreds yes. of miles uh i'm gonna have apart. to check out that amphitheater do you know the name of the gosh i'm totally blanking but i will think I'm so, I'm ashamed that I don't know it. Can't well, and I was on the uh, I was on the Canadian cell phone network when I was up there. That's how close you are mm-hmm. to the uh, to the border. But uh, gosh, what was her name? Anyway, next time you talk, I'll spend two seconds on my cell phone and see if I can find her name. But I guess where I was going with this is there is a culture of outdoor music there. Mm, I, I mean, love that you said outdoor music too. Yeah, yeah. I I really what I want to do next is really foster the the caliber of the talent locally because while there's a lot of interest in music um per the you know the demand that is higher than the supply uh there there isn't a lot of uh there aren't a lot of resources available for someone who wants to become like a world-class drummer or world-class bassist in fact i just started learning bass myself because there just aren't any bassists in town (laughs) and so i i've been um i put together a, a music workshop last fall and i hope to make it annual where i flew up my team from l.a and just had them sit with like the bar musicians of Williston and the church musicians in Williston and the high schoolers who are up and coming uh, just to see what would happen because um, t- you can have all the talent in the world, but if, if there's no one to foster it or guide you in it, what's it going to be worth? So that's that's been my latest focus is just trying to hone what we've got up there, even if just to build my own band, you know? Well, and I will say this about uh, L.A. as much as I despise the city of uh, city of L.A., I, when you're down there, bands try so much harder than they do anywhere mm-hmm. else. There's no tuning your yeah. instrument in oh, between yeah. songs. There's no downtime. I mean, bands get after it. And I think it's because they have to, mm-hmm. right? Because they know any given audience, there's a record company executive there. There's a That's tour true. promoter, whatever. Mm-hmm. So they always have their A game. So I will Absolutely. give I will give Los Angeles props for uh for doing mm-hmm. that. Well, talent begets talent, you know. So the more talent I can get up in Williston, uh, the more talent I expect to find there, and maybe even build a little facility sometime for like production work or something. We just we just don't have anything currently, and so there's nowhere to go but up. Yeah. Now, does Williston still kind of have boom and bust cycle? vibes to it or because of the prominence of the Bakken over the last 10 years maybe there's or 15 20 years there's been more stability there but you know and you're probably too young to to even get this but I mean all of the oil towns all the extraction towns usually have these big build-up phases and then oil crashes Mm -hmm. then they go away and I don't know if I don't know what it's like up in the Bakken because when Michael Patrick Smith went up there, I want to say it was 2012. Mm-hmm. Definitely boom time. Yeah, I mean he was living in a you know somebody's bottom shelf, right? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, after yeah. he was done living in his truck. There's a bit of it. Um, you know, I mean the, the Williams County, where Williston is based, was the second fastest growing county in America from 2010 to 2020. The first fastest growing was McKenzie County, which is just to our south. So there's been a huge influx of people and it's no longer just men. I mean, when Michael was there, the ratio of men to women was like nine to one kind of thing. Um, very hungry, very hungry town. <laughs> uh, and But, you know, people bring their wives, they bring their girlfriends up and then they start having babies. And that alone, I mean, as, as much of a strain as it is on the school system is like an anchor for community stability because you don't want to uproot the place where your kids grew up. And so as soon as you start having babies somewhere, I mean, um, 
you're probably there to stay. So I, I, I when there is a downturn, uh, like 2020, for example, when we were negative 40 um, dollars, I you could just sense the the like despondence around town, but people weren't moving away so much as they were just kind of loafing around, oh, wishing yeah. they'd saved more of their you know salary from the last three years. It was great. I was um, in Midland when I was young in my career, so I was maybe twenty five years old. Oh, Midland! What year was that? Not so that you. Yeah, that, yeah, that's fine. I'm old. That was probably thirty years ago. So call it, you know, mid, mid nineties. And I'm sitting there at the Midland Petroleum Club, all these old guys around the table and each one of them is talking about their various companies. And it was like water off a duck's back. They were like, oh, that was about the time I lost my third company. <laughs> you know, I lost my fourth company. Then the ex-wife got the fifth company. I mean, they just didn't care. And in a little naive, he oh said- why don't you save some money in the good times so that then in the bad times you can make it through? One guy put his arm around me. He said, oh, hell, son, it's a lot more fun to spend it. One hundred percent. Oh, I'm so frustrated by that mentality up there. It's, it's It just drives me nuts. I mean, I understand it when you when you put $150,000 a year in, in the hands of like a 21-year-old. You're like, right. what do you expect? But when you're 30, when you're 40, when you start to have these people depending on you and you're still, you know, buying a new Jeep because we're in a boom cycle, like, I don't know. It's just very not shrewd. Uh, and it reminded me a little bit even of your episode the other day about the alcoholism. Because, yeah. I mean, that that indulgence, that like uh, the party culture, the yeah. let's get let's get drunk, let's get high. Uh, I feel like it goes hand in hand with that that money, that the, the yeah. boom bust cycle. I had JJ, and I'm going to mispronounce his last name, Arsami, Selmi, who, talk, uh, who talked about the boom and bust uh, town of Rock Springs, mm -hmm. Wyoming. And he'd written a book on it. It was kind of an oral history. And he came on the podcast and talked about it. And that's the thing he kind of came back to over and over again the booze, the drugs, and all that. It's like, well, yeah, you got a lot of, you got. For the first time in your life, a lot of money in your hands. What are you going to do with it? And so, okay, I found the name of the artist, Halliday Quist. Oh, I don't know that name. What a good name. Are you yeah, kidding Halliday me? Halliday Quist. Yeah. No, but she's a Montana singer. Halliday Quist. I'm going to look her up. I'll have to look her up. So. Yeah, I could, I could stand to make a few more friends across the border. There we go. Montana. There we go. I'll introduce you if you'd like. That'd be great. I haven't talked to her in a while. But uh, no, she was really cool and she was good. I mean, kind of traditional Americana singer-songwriter type stuff. And so... Yeah. yeah, I love to see it. It's it's pretty neat. All right. So you brought up... You sent me an email, which, of course, I didn't read. I hate to read emails. <laughs> Sorry about that. You were very kind to put that together. But you were talking about the episode I did with Kelly Mitchell, and you said, this is an example of something. Mm. What was that? Yeah. So, I first of all, I was delighted by that episode. Um, especially, cool. yeah, she's super cool. And as someone who's married to, um, not quite a climate guy per se, quote unquote, but like someone who works in the missions and is kind of more on the other side of the equation to, to render our relationship carbon neutral. Um, <laughs> I appreciated your willingness to chat with her and just the friendliness and the, the vibe is, is super, super cool. Cause I love that, that cross the aisle, cross partisan, um, uh, community. So, yeah, toward the end of that episode, excuse me, 
you had mentioned like, hey, Kelly, let's um, we should get like your people and my people together in a room sometime and let's pick an issue like a, like an easy issue, a small issue and find all the points of common ground and see where we can agree and like come up with let's a go policy. Find a river. Let's yeah, go, go find, find a, a river, river to fix or something. <laughs> exactly. Because yeah. we're all conservationists. I mean, the oil and gas guys are hunting on the lease every other weekend. So, you know what I mean? They, they right. care about the earth. Um, and I said to myself, oh, my gosh, Chuck just described um, the Braver Angels Common Ground workshop format. Um, now, Braver Angels is the the nation's largest cross-partisan organization that's working to build bridges across the divide. Uh, and they do this through all sorts of workshops, um, some of which are one-on-one. You know, if if you are super progressive and I'm over here super libertarian, um, we get to know each other first as people, establish that bedrock, and then discuss some of our differences in belief from there and try to better understand one another. Some of the workshops are more like that common ground thing that you yourself described where you get different people in a room to actually like, you know, write something on a whiteboard, underline the points of agreement and then distill it at the end so you can see just how much you actually do agree. Uh, and Brave Angels also has a music team, <clears throat> which is where I come in. Um, I lead our music programming. You know, we, we try to integrate music into all of these existing workshops and debates and so forth that the organization has. But we also do outreach just culturally because who's more powerful in culture than the entertainers? So if you can get the entertainers on board for this bridge building cause, you're in a much better position to speak to young people in particular. So my my solution to solve everything. Oh, it's solving everything. Of course, of course it wouldn't. Who needs a job when you can solve everything? Yeah, when I can solve everything, mm-hmm. at least in my own mind. But no, I've always thought that, and and I'm a libertarian, so I, I don't believe in having a lot of laws. But mm-hmm. I'd be right there with everybody. Be willing to have this as a law. People running against each other in politics should have to get their families and go eat dinner together once every two weeks, let's say. No cameras, no press. Oh, my gosh. You know, grab your husband. I grab my wife. If we're running against each other, we have to go eat dinner. An hour. And, like, nobody's around, no cameras, no nothing. You should have to do that. I'm going to pitch that to Braver Angels. Not as a law per se, right. uh, but but as some kind of initiative because we can sometimes. I mean, we've been working on um, uh, what's called the Braver Politics Initiative, actually getting some of these methods and um, uh, really almost like marriage counseling tactics to to be used on the hill. Uh, and I feel like that would be so up their alley. Um, they might want to publicize it with a little bit of press, but I like the appeal of no press. I re- I really like where your minds go with that. You know, Chatham House rules, whatever, set at dinner, stays at dinner, but you at least have to interact. Cause, I love mean, it. I mean, yeah, how, how put a you... face to the name, put a face yeah. to the color. I mean, it's really easy on social media and through the press to talk bad about someone. If you're going to have to go see their children in nine days, maybe you bite your tongue. Oh my gosh, 100%. Yeah. I love that idea, Chuck. That's great. Yeah. There we go. Okay, I'm done. You're done. My worker's done. No, but I th- so is there a website or something for the organization? Yeah, so braverangels.org um, is, uh, well, the, the menu is very robust on that website, but you can find write-ups on all the different workshops I just described and more. Um, there's also, for any musicians out there, we have a songwriting contest that's taking submissions right now. I think between now and at the end of May, I should know this as like captain of the music team. But um, but yeah, that that song contest is seeking musicians who are who are um, putting together songs that are either an example of bridge building, like a, a 
like a a song that it maybe holds an opinion really strongly, but still is humanizing the other point of view and not just deriding them and and kind of strawmanning them. Or um or uh oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm totally losing my footing here. An example of bridge building or a a song about unity, shall we say? Oh. So it, it, we we attract often songs that are kind of kumbaya, but that's not that's not totally what Brave Angels is. There's nothing mushy about bridge building. Um, unity is strong. It's complex. It's it's multicultural, and and there's room for everyone to be very much themselves, even if they hold really really strong opinions. So we we don't want to shy away from just um, you know people holding very very partisan beliefs in their songs or other art that they're making. So does that make sense? Yeah, no. You know what the fascinating thing is, is uh, the Beatles wrote the song uh, Revolution, right? And uh, you've heard Revolution. Mm -hmm. And it was actually the theme song for the Young Republicans Club, College Club, as well as the theme song for the Young Democrats You are kidding. Yeah, I didn't know the, that. Back in the 60s. Yeah, they had... Both groups adopted it as their uh, so the Beatles. You know, the Beatles are the best, right? So I love that. Oh my cool? goodness! Yeah, yeah they both know, saw something in the song. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I've had um, <laughs> there's this one song that I have called uh, Take Twenty One. I think it was that was optioned for like a Showtime um, mini series about the Trump administration, and obviously it's not like friendly to Trump. And I was so amused by that because like that song is not about hating on hating on Republicans. Like, I'm very libertarian through and through. Um, but that song in particular is really just about, like, humanizing the other side. And here they think it's about their team. And I was so delighted by that. I'm like, yeah, use my song on your liberal show. Like, that's great. I think that's kick-ass. Oh, that's funny. That's wild. That's, you know, Jewel gets paid a fortune to sing You Were Meant For Me at weddings. Mm -hmm. It's a breakup song, <laughs> right? I mean, the lady <laughs> is saying, you know, one day you will see you mm -hmm. were meant for me and I was meant for you. Oh. Goodness. Kind of lamenting slash blasting post breakup yes. about mm -hmm. this. That's like uh, Je the um, not Jeff Buckley, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah too. People bring that up as is this kind of romantic or or sweet song, and I'm like, that's a dark one. It's yeah. a real dark one. Yeah. Get what you will. So my priest Patrick, the um, five o'clock service I go to, we in effect have what I'll call a jazz band. So we have no singer, piano player, stand-up bass, guitar, sit-down percussion, sometimes keyboard player, sometimes a violin player. And but uh so we'll actually do non-traditional hymns during church. So they closed church last Sunday with Let It Be by the Beatles, but they'll mm -hmm. periodically do Hallelujah. No, no kidding. And I'll sit there and I go, I know that's the word. That's the word. <laughs> gonna strike us down with lightning here. Or, uh, oh, that's or so funny. Yeah. In an Episcopal church, huh? And it doesn't the Episcopalians are crazy. Yeah, so. I thought it's like Catholic light. I know. You know what the major flex is by the Episcopalians, which I find just remarkable, is, right, they're the Anglican church. Mm -hmm. Henry VIII started, was it Henry VIII that started the church because he kept beheading wives and the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce, so he starts the Church of England. The Angli the Episcopal, Episcopalians, Anglicans, you know, Church of England, they claim lineage all the way back to Peter mm -hmm. and being the first Pope. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, not, hey, we started this new church because our guy is beheading people. They literally just claim it all the way back and they say the Catholics are the fault. I'm not a defender of the Catholics and all, but that is a pretty strong That's flex. super good. There's actually, I mean, not to get too much on the religion front, but there's some Anglican parishes that I think are getting reinstated as formal Catholic parishes um, because they maintained what you just described, which is called apostolic succession, where, you know, everyone laid hands on the next priest and the next priest laid hands on the next priest going all the way back to Peter. Uh, and that, I mean, it's something they value a lot. So, yeah. God be with them. Uh, it, that, and I also think it's the uh, the great flex by Jesus that he would just rename people. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. My name's Simon. And uh, you're Peter. No, not really anymore. <laughs> you're Peter. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wow, kudos to you, Jesus. There you go. I mean, <laughs> Son of God, I guess you can do I mean, that. yeah, let there be light. His words matter. His words make moves, I guess. All right. So people, okay, give us the punchline on how you help on compliance. So, oh, if, so if you wanted somebody out in the audience to call you, what does that someone look like? Okay. Well, first of all, don't call me. <laughs> don't call me because I'm about to have a baby. I'm not really accepting new clients right now, actually, because I, I really value my current clientele and I want to make sure that they're well taken care of. Um, and if I add a bunch of new clients before I leave for a, a few weeks or a few months, then just not very smart. But, you know, Bookmark me for a later date, cookcompliance.co. Um, I basically just eliminate, I'm a, I'm a, a bullshit eliminator okay. in the compliance world. So I handle some of the administrative tasks that you're asked to, to manage, whether it's a, like a drug testing audit or, um, you know, keeping track of certificates of insurance or training, like building a, a safety training calendar for what you should be covering every month, that kind of thing. Um, some of what I do is educational. It's it's me explaining to you why you're being asked to do a certain thing and how you can strategize, given who you want to work for in the next five years, to better get ahead of what I know those particular operators are going to ask of you. And then finally, there's a negotiative kind of lawyerly component where, um, you know, operator X might say, I want you to have a $10 million umbrella uh, policy in your insurance uh in your insurance book. And I say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, again, that two person company, that three person company, that doesn't really make sense for us. Can we talk about lowering that? And so I'll stand in the gap there and mediate and say, okay, this is why this stuff shouldn't apply to us. Let's work toward an exemption. So I wear a lot of different hats um, and my team helps me handle all of that stuff that I just described. I'm really, really grateful for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a vague industry, so it's hard to, <laughs> if, if you're in it, like if you're a small contractor, you know the stuff I'm talking about. You know the ISNet world, the PEC, the like the Veriforce, the NCMS, the TPS, like it's alphabet soup. It doesn't make much sense to people outside of it. But if you're in it, you know how annoying it is. And so everything I just said would make a little more sense. It seemed to be one of those things that when my career, when this stuff got brought up to me, it was bad, right? Something mm. bad had happened. On a day-to-day -day basis, I didn't know any of that existed. It was only when something bad happened. Mm. So how do people find music? Yeah, um, I uh, recommend, <laughs> this, I got to get a lot better at this. I think that you just search me on whatever platform you listen to music on, whether that's YouTube, whether that's Spotify, Apple Music. Alma Cook is the name. That's A-L-M-A-C-O-O-K. Um, I've got a website. It's hearalma.com, H-E-A-R, like here with your ears, alma.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at hearalma. 
But let's be honest, I, again, I do things at my own pace, which often means I'm not really present on the internet too much. I'm doing my thing. But certainly on those streaming services, wherever you enjoy listening, you could find me by looking up my name. Okay. So to close this um, podcast, we're going to put the the video mm. and the song to kind of close it. Which one you want? Oh, 5,000 Candles, obviously. 5,000 Candles, okay. <laughs> yeah, featuring Willis in North Dakota and the faces of the hardworking Americans who live there. There, so you want to do it? You want me to do it? Because we're going to slap it right on the end here. You want to intro it? You want me to intro it? Yeah, you. I want to hear you do it. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for my best Wolfman Jack uh, impersonation, or I guess maybe Howard Stern impersonation or whatever. Oh, be my guest. No. So here we go. 5,000 Candles, Alma Cook, please enjoy. There's a lot of people running their mouth that don't stay the night, never come through town. And some other people running about that don't take the time to suss you out. Still, some of us every night be making toast to you. Like, isn't it nice that somebody had the presence of mind to speak for you? Let there be light. Because you could love somebody like you They say you're too, too, too damn small and I'm 